Is it at Milena Megan or at Megan Milena? At Milena Megan. Okay. Cool, cool. Yeah. Megan Milena was already taken, and then I couldn't do Megan and Milena, and Milena und Milena just gave it a weird German vibe, <laughs> and I was like, that doesn't really represent what we're all about. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. Today, we're going to learn about a botanist who says age is no big freaking deal. And also, a Japanese performance artist? You question it in your voice, but she was 100% a Japanese performing artist. I'm not screwing with you. It's nothing's a surprise. There's no surprises in this episode on my end. I promise. Okay. And were you not pleasantly surprised last week with the Nazis? I I mean, I was. I was pleasantly surprised by a woman that wasn't even an artist. I just, I just. Just trust me, Milena. Trust me. I'm so happy. Also, you just, you should have just been like, do you trust me? And I feel like I should have been wearing like a blue, like those big pants, like balloon pants and then like a little crop top with like long braided hair and you'd be wearing a purple vest with a monkey on your shoulder and holding out your hand. We watched very different movies growing up when we were children. We were more of an Ace Ventura family myself. (laughs) I wasn't really allowed to watch Ace Ventura. (laughs) Yeah, that says a lot about our family's parenting styles. Oh, God. It shows. It shows. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah, no, so so for realsies, I'm doing a not visual artist this episode. What? Our I'm first so performance artist. Yay. Yeah. You excited? I'm so freaking excited, Megan. So yeah, I'm not faking you out on this episode's person. They are, for real, a performing artist. So not a painter, not a sculptor, but instead, drum roll, please, a dancer. Oh! <gasps> You picked a dancer? I did. Oh, my God. Ah. And not just... Uh, sorry, what? Not just any dancer. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my the God. woman who crafted Japan's most popular form of theater, oh my God. Uzumo no Okuni, oh creator God. of Kabuki. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'm so freaking excited. Tell me more. I thought you might be. Ah. Um... Okay, did, did you guys ever see a kabuki show when you were in Japan? Uh, yeah. Just, well, no big deal. Yeah, totally saw it. <laughs> Milena lived there with her military family for three years when she was younger. Um, okay, that's cool. How was it? I don't, like, I was, I was young, so my, my memory is, like, shot, but I remember. Oh, it's been a while. I think some of the festivals, too, um, like the Sakura festivals, the Cherry Blossom festivals, sometimes mm-hmm. they would have, like, outdoor ones. That totally makes sense with the insane amount of research I've done for this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was, it was less like formal going to a theater and more like them having like an outdoor stage. That's totally how it started. Yeah, minus the stage too. It's pretty cool. Um, so I really, I mean, I knew Kabuki as Japanese theater, but as to what, where, when, and how, not so much. Right. 
And like for the impact Azumo no Okuni has had on modern performing arts in Japan, there's relatively little personal information about her. I'm sure it's hard to like find it because you're searching in a Western world, a Western Google search engine, not a lot of that is going to come up. You're right. So I, I totally think that to an extent there was a language barrier for research material on her. Two, it's not surprising in that historically women have been excluded from written historical records, which was definitely a thing in 17th century Japan. Oh, absolutely. Bury that shit under, right under that rug. And the fact that, you know, she was born almost 500 years ago um, in 1572, that can make finding primary sources a little difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, researching for her family, I think she was born to a blacksmith, maybe, siblings, no idea, (laughs) parents' name, I don't know. (laughs) But... I mean, name-wise, we do know that she was from or around the city of Azumo, thus Azumo no Okuni for mm-hmm. her name. Yeah. And that's, it's a sm- I was about to say small, it is not a small coastal town. It is a very large coastal town on the main island of Japan. Uh, it's on the southwest coast, about a two and a half hours drive to Hiroshima. Okay. Yeah, which I feel like most Americans are going to learn be like, oh, yeah, I might know where that is. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And... Izumo, the, the city, it's home to the oldest Shinto shrine in Japan, the Izumo Grand Shrine. I'm pretty sure I've been there. I feel like there's one other shrine that kind of, you know, like outranks it in importance, but they're they're both pretty important. Is that second one, was there like water around it? I'm not entirely sure, but it's right on the coast. Yeah. 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 We went to a lot of temples. So I definitely haven't been to any Shinto shrines at all but i mean it seems pretty cool so yeah so this shrine the azumo grand shrine it is it's one of the most important ones in japan and it's here in the late 1500s that okuni was most likely working as a miko or a shrine maiden okay all right which is what kikyo is from inuyasha (laughs) i know i know no i know i know but when i looked at pictures you have to you have to you have to make those bridges right I looked at pictures and I was like, holy moly. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. That's the one cultural <laughs> reference I have to compare it to. <laughs> That's fair. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to co-curl up in a hole and die now. Um, <laughs> I'm not even that big of a fan. I'm not even a fan of Inuyasha. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Inuyasha. I lived yeah. three years yeah. in Japan. I do not watch anime. There's some good stuff. I think actually I'm working on One Punch Man, but. That's also like a satire of itself, so... I mean, Shin-chan all the way. That's fair. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, too. Yeah, it's good stuff. So, yeah, so Okuni is dressed as Kikyo from Inuyasha. <laughs> and she's working as a shrine maiden in Azumo, coming of age in the end of the Warring States period, also known as Shingoku period. Right. No surprise, things were a bit of a hot mess during this time. We've got rival feudal lords in your constant fighting with one another, sending their samurai after each other. So we've got this really violent, really unstable time. And come 1603, Okuni is roughly 30. It does come to an end. We've got one leading shogunate, which is a military dictator, assuming power. And that transitions the country as a whole in- into relative peace. Things were taken off. Commoners went from two meals a day to three. Ooh, fancy. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, We've got the invention of sushi in the late Edo period. Oh, no, I really want sushi. Tasty. 
with the relative social and political stability we've got, uh, there's an increase in economy, which means more disposable income for the upper classes. Right. What's a samurai to do when there's no war to fight and money in their pocket? Well, for one, go see a theater show. So if you're well off in the late 1500s, early 1600s Japan, the type of show you're going to go see is no theater. And to this day, no performances are, they're the oldest continuously performed theater, like, in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I know there's, there's folk art, but this is consistently maintained throughout the centuries, which is pretty wild. I mean, they've been going since the 1300s and are still relevant, which is, again, pretty wild. But also, if you think about it, like, Japan is so old. Western world is, like, fairly young compared to... Yeah, going back to, you know, centuries ago. So, yeah, I mean, compared to the United States where, you know, we're like, oh, wow, that house is built in the 1880s. It's so old. <laughs> no. You're like, please, bitch, the house down the street was built in 1800. <laughs> so it, we do. Yeah. Culturally, we've got a slightly different perspective on things. And I mean, culturally within these plays for Japan, they're very particular. The performances are very refined. Everything about the plays from the actors to the music and the costumes and even how those stories are told, they fit into a very specific tradition right? where everything is deliberate. I mean, no plays, they're full of symbolism. Mm-hmm. The masks that are used, you know, the pacing, the movements, they're, they're slow. And the plays typically fall within five categories. But I mean, overall, very, very traditional theater. Right. Now, because of all the fighting in the 1500s, no theater was going strong, but the instability, it didn't really lend itself to any new cultural creative growth during the Warring States period. But come the change in power, transitioning to the Edo period, things are changing and there's an opening for new creative expression. And this is where Okuni comes into play. So working presumably as a shrine maiden, because again, these finer details about her life, we just, we don't really know. Okuni was responsible in aiding the everyday aspects of the shrine, but more importantly for us, performed ceremonial dances like Kagura, a sacred performance for the gods. So I'm sure like when you've gone to some of those cherry blossom festivals, you saw some of that yeah. while you were there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, while there's very little known about Akuni, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she was a bit of an extrovert. <laughs> I, I feel like from the visual artists that we have covered, there's very few that would dance for a public audience. Yeah. Yeah. You got to yeah. be a certain special kind of lady to put on a costume and jiggle around or... Well, I guess in her case, it was more, like, deliberate, like, movements. But, uh, I mean, the, yeah, no, the costumes are so elaborate and just so out of the ordinary. Like, I actually just went to, uh, oh, my God, um, Yoshitoshi. Um, there there was a, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, they had all of his work there. And the actors and, like, the dancers were so out of place that like or so like far-fetched that the way that he depicted them was like their eyes were cross-eyed and they had a specific like way the mouth was and that's how you knew that he was he was depicting an actor and not an actual person in history because of how ridiculous uh, they okay. looked yeah yeah so she i mean she was ballsy enough to go out there and to do these sacred performances in front of an audience and she was really captivating people really liked her and you know something she was really passionate about and okuni did start performing outside of the shrinto shine to you know a wider audience and in the early 1600s she's in kyoto which you know today it's a five five hour drive then roughly at least a week's journey right yeah and most likely 
she was going out trying to raise money for her shrine. And I've kind of got some conflicting sources. So during this time, you know, I've got one source saying that shrines and temples were going into bankruptcy, which makes sense for her needing to go out and to raise money for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it also mentions that you've got shrine maidens on the main travel roads, and that was kind of slang for prostitutes. Mm. We've got another one that says that with increasing wealth from the commoners, there's more money going back into the shrine and temples through the festivals. But I mean, either way, Akuni made the change in her life. And she traveled. Now, keep in mind, average age expectancy for this period is between 40 to 50. So by then, Okuni's roughly 30. Mm. Yeah, so she's got shit to do. So in Kyoto, what Okuni is interested in doing is pulling together a company of performers working within her new style of dance. And how Okuni pulls together these workers is really unique. She's recruiting only women and recruiting from all social classes, more so sex workers. And that's a really big deal. I love her. I, I so wish there was more personal information about her. I was like, how is there not a good English research book on her? How is there nothing? Like, there's so much. I'm like, I just want to know more. So yeah, I social class and movement within Japan at this point is very confined. And gender roles are very set. Later on in, the, in this Edo period, there's a publication called The Great Learning for Women. And that for decades was considered a must-have for new brides. And here's a little gem from it you'll enjoy. Quote, a woman should look on her husband as if he were heaven itself and never weary of thinking how she may yield to him. Oh my God, go fuck yourself. Yeah, and then that's one sentence. The whole book is like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, right? Ew. It's gross. So essentially, the author is summing up attitudes towards women that they're second to men and incapable of anything without them. And that was pretty common attitudes within that culture at the time. Yeah. And if they weren't a bride then they're a whore and they're not worth anything. Yeah. So we still got some gender issues today that are still messy in Japan. Yeah, they're not super progressive by any means, but we we could spend all night. Yeah, we've got our problems here in the United States, but in that regard, we're a smidgen better. Just a tiny bit. Yeah, so Okuni looked past all that gender and society crap. She, like, reaffirmed what women were capable of and was going around and being like, yeah you're a sex worker but uh, you could totally still perform with me i'll show you the moves and everything like we got this so like having women from the lowest social tier joined with her like was a way for her to kind of subvert the system that's pretty cool and i like to think her way of kind of giving it the finger be like eh i don't care eh, that's pretty great also like i mean think about it she like worked at a temple and she was like no i only want sex workers like i prefer sex workers <laughs> she's like and i think she just saw the good in everyone and having that really solid religious foundation. And I mean, that's speculative, but it makes sense, especially if she's out there raising money for the temple. Right. She's going to take all the help she can get. Absolutely. Why not? Yeah. Also, prostitutes are probably really great actors. Uh, they 100% are. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the day came in Kyoto when Okuni gave a performance in a dry riverbed. Uh, that was a common area to perform to the public. And she ended up rewriting Japanese theater history in the process. That show Okuni gave became Kabuki. That's pretty cool. So unlike the very stiff and traditional performances of no theaters, mm-hmm. Akuni disregarded that in her work. Her approach to dance was a little bit more in line with folk dancing, Mm -hmm. uh, much more natural, much more expressive, much more loose and open. The very name Kabuki means beyond the norm. And what she was doing wasn't normal, which included 
shocking, dressing like a man. What? I'm yeah, and then heard of. acting as one too. What? Like she assumed male roles and dressed as them and performed as such. Oh, somebody burned the witch. Pretty much. Uh, now, men acting as women in no was totally normal, but the other way around, like, what? That's mm. not a thing. So we've got an all-women's cast. They're very active. They're doing these exa- exaggerated movements and facial expressions and costumes and makeup. And it just completely disregards the old-fashioned customs of no. And they're performing outside of the theater. You know, this, this is street art at the time. There's no roof over their heads. They're just, they're in dry riverbeds. Right. And people loved it. Akuni and her troop, like, they picked up and they made the trek across uh, one of Japan's five highways to Ito, the capital. And which, in good weather, it's a week's travel by foot. And they did that so they could perform to a larger audience. And, I mean, let's be real. Ito's the capital. That's where the money is. That's where the, the better-paying audience is as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And Akuni's style of theater really took off. It, it didn't take long for other groups to form from both high and low society. Um, at first, only women performers performing the same way that she was. Mm-hmm. So all doing this kabuki style, much more animated and much more contemporary stories and much more like down to earth. Critics of the time hated it. I think their point of view, it was essentially like trash reality TV show. Kind of like level. what Shakespeare was. Yeah. They were like, Psh, whatever. This isn't going to last. Right. This is gross. Right. And at this time, too, we've got the rise of Bunraku. And that's this amazing puppet theater. Yeah. They have some pretty elaborate puppets. I mean, between No and Kabuki and then this puppet theater, I mean, all the costumes and the makeup mm-hmm. and the design work, it's just, it's so over the top and amazing. It's pretty great. Where it's do you think? Crazy. I would love to see one. Where do you think I get my flair for just being over the top? I mean, I have spent a good bit of time around your family. <laughs> it's genetic. It really is. <laughs> Living three years in Japan didn't help, but yeah, you're fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, so we've got these puppet shows, we've got kabuki taken off. Um, and what's important for those two things is that they're they're made and designed and meant for the average person. Peasants make up 90% of the population. Fine arts like no are catering to the upper classes. Now that warlords aren't trying to kill everyone, the average person is able to chill out, make some money, and actually enjoy life, which means enjoying art. And Okuni tapped into that. I mean, she filled an absence. Sure, the true, like, professionals were looking down on her, but hey, I mean, she's hustling and people are loving it. Unfortunately, Kabuki, as Okuni created it, was not around for long. I mean, for society in which men are running things, the idea of women organizing and thinking for themselves, that's a little dangerous to them. So in 1629, the government banned women from performing in Kabuki. (sighs) Now, one aspect was it was the prominence of sex workers in the theater and putting on these shows. Mm -hmm. It's very common in tea houses. Um, It was a great way for geishas to show off. You know, they're singing and they're dancing and, you know, they're physical assets to potential clients so government said yeah no that's not cool after that young men boys essentially took it over but for the same reasons the government had to be like no 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 that's not cool too because again they're using it you know they were soliciting sex work as well from it and that's how men came to assume all roles in kabuki theater and that's a custom that continues today right yeah so modern kabuki performances they are rooted in the groundwork that okuni crafted uh, we've got combination of music and dancing and 
chanting, and all in this really over-the-top performances that really exaggerated life. I mean, the set designs, they lead to really dramatic set changes. We've got trap doors. There's a footpath from the stage that leads out into the audience and that allows for really dramatic entrances and exits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just imagine like something along the lines of like a drag show and how over the top. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, over the centuries, the popularity did wean, but today kabuki is Japan's most popular form of theater. And along with No and the puppet show Bunraku, I mean, there's they're the pillars of classical Japanese performing arts. Mm-hmm. So while women were pushed out, it's founded on feminism, which I thought was pretty cool. And while the details are scarce on Akuni's later years, one suggestion is that she settled back in the coastal town of Izumo as a nun living out the rest of her years writing poetry and religious sutras. Oh, staying true to herself. So yeah, yep. Aww. Uh, so yeah, so that's Azumo no Okuni. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing anything because I'm well white American and I'm sorry. Lo siento. <laughs> Can you say that in Japanese? <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> you know how You've been talking about something that I hold near and dear to my heart, which is dance. Yes. We're going to talk about something you hold near and dear to your heart. You were talking about dance. I was going to talk about plants. Okay. So is she going around eating these plants? But like, mm, yes, I'll do a nice saute and some garlic with this one. Uh, no. Uh. No, no, no. That's about where the differences between you and her end. One likes vegetables. Other likes eating vegetables. <laughs> like I would not be invited on her scientific excursions you know, like, at all. No, because you never know if they were actually poisonous or not. Only one way to find out. Hand me a fork. With the amount that she found, at least one of them was poisonous. So what is she all about? Who is she? Tell me more. Her full name was Inez Enriqueta Julieta Mejia. Now, you will notice by my dictation and my accent that she's definitely not Caucasian female scientist. And the reason I picked her was because in all the scientists that I've chosen, I didn't pick, I I haven't picked a Latin American or a Spanish scientist. And it's Latin American History Month. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm a terrible gringo. (laughs) And I was looking... No siento. I was looking for other... So Americana. (laughs) I was looking forever for, like, maybe a Colombian one, but, like, I, I, it's really hard to find a Latin scientist that, I don't, I don't know why it's so hard to find. I think I also found Ellen Ochoa, who's also of uh, Mexican-American heritage. Uh, She's, like, the first Latin-American woman to go into space, but I barely got anything from that. Like, I got maybe a blurb from her. Which is crazy, because she's the first Latin American woman in space. I don't understand it. Inés Enriquita Julieta Mejia was a Mexican-American botanist. She was born May 24th, 1870 in Washington, D.C. Her dad was a Mexican diplomat. I am unsure who her mom was. You know, it really sucks how often that happens in our research. Yeah, like, I need names. I need, like, what did mom do? What's happening with her? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I don't even know if she has brothers or sisters because like one source didn't say anything about her brothers and sisters. And then another source said she had 
seven of them. What? Okay. That's a big difference. No, I don't even know what to tell you guys. I mean, I could probably tell you that like, I, I mean, this is the, this is the juicy side. So the reason she's got like freaking seven other brothers and sisters is apparently six of them are from a previous marriage for mama before mom and dad got married. And then the seventh one was the product of an affair with a mistress from from dad yeah you know but like i'm not i don't know like that those two things i don't know what to tell you guys so i'm just gonna throw that up in the air and say make of it what you will (laughs) what i will say though is that consistently across the board mom and dad separated and she spent a good chunk of time with mom like jumping like around the united states like one source said she was in texas another source said she was in philadelphia i just have a feeling she just bounced around a lot and then she ended up consistently she ended up with dad in mexico a little bit after Uh, so this is all late 1800s that we're talking yes Yeah, yeah yeah While she's doing this travel across the United States. Okay. And isn't that, like, around the time we, like, annexed Mexico anyway? Oh, shit. I really don't know that much about that at all. I really don't. Oh, no, no, no. That's... Yeah, I mean, I I don't know when, but essentially we just was like, this is ours now, but you're not American. I think it was around that time. Go back to your country. It was bad. Like, bitch, you just took my country. (laughs) I was here. (laughs) I'm in my country. (laughs) I was here first. (laughs) Look over the Native Americans and be like, bro, good luck. (laughs) We got these treaties. They don't do shit. We got casinos, though. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, Make money off the white man by selling cigarettes. We have a really nasty history. Yeah, especially here in the United States. Racially, we are are all kinds of messed up. Yeah, that's bad. We got some heavy baggage. I think she just saw all this and decided she was going to go hang out with Dad in Mexico. So... I mean, I imagine she was dealing with some pretty intense racism herself. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, like, the pictures that I have of her, like, she doesn't, she looks like a lighter, I don't think people would look at her like they look at me and go, oh, she's just a white girl. But she's definitely, like, light, lighter skinned. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure the fact that her dad was a Mexican diplomat did not help the situation. Uh, yeah, but social standing, it could. <laughs> this Mexican's okay. <laughs> That's so dumb. I don't know. It's always been really dumb. Yeah. So when did she head back roughly to Mexico to Uh, stay with her dad? Unsure. What I am sure of. Okay. (laughs) Is that she would. No, I mean, that's. Yeah. What I am sure of is that she spent enough time over there to like get married twice. So, I mean, both of those marriages ended. So husband number one just like died. And from what I, I guess I. Cancer? I think it was cancer. I think he died from cancer. Okay. Husband number two, consistently across the board of all of my my uh, sources were, he was really shitty with money and he was not a loving marriage. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, so it was, she was just like, I can't. Mental breakdown. She was having like, she was dealing with this crappy marriage. She didn't have a direction in life. So for her mental health, she was like, I'm leaving. We're divorcing. I'm moving to the United States. So she moved to San Francisco. And then there she became like a social worker. And she's like, you know, I really like plants and nature and the environment. And I'm going to join the Sierra Club. Okay. I'm not familiar with that. I wasn't familiar with the Sierra Club, but apparently it's still a thing. It still exists. Um, It was 
created in 1892 by a guy named John Muir in California. And it was specifically to protect, like, the mountains of California and, like, a very environmental-based group of just, like, Mm -hmm. people who put forth effort to, like, gather resources and, like, defend the environment and, like, enjoy the nature because... I mean, around that time, there's, like, the Industrial Revolution and all that good stuff, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's in full swing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're trying to fight that. She's really into it. And so much so that at the age of 51, she enrolls in the University of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, to study natural studies, like natural science. Oh, nice. She did so at the age of 51. Even better. If she was in Edo period Japan, she'd be dead by then. She'd be dead, right? She studied on and off. For 16 years. Hey, I mean, I like that type of commitment. That's really impressive. I mean, yes. So she never completed her degree, but the reason it was 16 years on and off was because she took years to go on expeditions. <laughs> I mean, that's the fun way to do it. Yeah. If you're if you're going to be out, that's better than, you know, some of the more mundane reasons you could. Yeah, no, I thought it was crazy. You know, like I'm sitting here at like the almost 30 thinking, okay, well, how am I going to like make a whole new career? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I like, should I go back to school? And this woman in the like 1890s at the age of 51 was like, I'm going to learn about plants. I'm going to go around and like look at plants And I'm going to, like, study plants, and that's all my life is going to be. And literally, that was the rest of her life. So, like, 1925, Stanford University sponsored an expedition to, like, Mexico to find rare botanical plants, and she was part of the crew. And she went with a group, but she was like, I I work better alone. And she went off on her (laughs) own. Just doing her own thing at the age of like 50, what, 1925? She was born in 1870. She was 55. 55. That would be you, though. To just go off and do my own thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one thing that's kind of amazing about these women. It's just like um, when I covered botanist Marianne North. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had, with her wealthy family, she had family money to finance things, but she was able to just go out and be like, I'm going to go trekking halfway across the world up in the mountains of Borneo and just paint, paint when I see, paint the plants. Some of the animals come in. I might, I might paint them too. <laughs> Insects. I'll even do you guys. I like your colors. They work well with my composition. So I, I think it's really ad- admirable. These people who are able to just go off on their own and be like, yeah, I'll see what I find. Maybe I, I can eat some of the plants. Maybe I can't. We'll find out. <laughs> I hopefully won't die. It's purple. This looks delicious. I'll try it with some arugula. This will be tasty. <laughs> now what wine to have with dinner tonight? <laughs> so she goes home and then she's hired to collect plants in Alaska, which I'm not really sure what Alaskan plants are. I think compared to like Mexican plants, like that's just like lame. Yeah, but it's at the same time so completely different from what you're accustomed to. Oh, I'm sure. So, I mean, it might have been, like, a nice change in scenery for her. A little on the cold side, I think I would have declined. But, I mean, to to see Alaska in the early 1900s, that would have been pretty wild. I mean, still today. Yeah, like, nothing was really out in Alaska at that point, if you really think about it. Uh, The next year, I guess she was really bored with Alaska because she ended up in the Amazon River. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it did not hold up to Mexico at all. No, no, no. Um, She's like, this This is what I came out here for? You gotta be kidding me. I'm getting back on the boat. <laughs> she actually, okay, so by herself, she traveled the river. Oh, it is like definitely snake o'clock, no matter where you are in the Amazon. 
I hope she had a big pair of boots so no snakies are going after her delicate ankles <laughs> like they did with mine. I would be so paranoid. Steamboat, canoe, and then a raft made of balsa wood. Nice. <laughs> and it's uh, 4,800 kilometers in like almost three years, um, like near the Andes. So what is 48,000 kilometers in American? <laughs> 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 I like how we're being honest with ourselves. Um, uh, let's see. It's 2,800 miles. Okay, 2,800 miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, just just half it, essentially. I wonder, like, yeah. like, width-wise, what that compares to. Like, if you were driving from, like, New York City, how far could you get across the country, mileage-wise? Like, Let's look. I imagine that might take you even into the ocean. So, from New York City... To California. Drumroll, please. 2,928 miles. But that's so impressive to, to travel that length of the Amazon, essentially the width of the United States, in the conditions of the Amazon. By yourself. Unreal. And she lived. She lived through that. It's pretty great. So she went, like, towards the Andes. And then she would do, like, I think she was also, like, in Brazil for a little bit and Peru for a little bit and Ecuador for a little bit. That was her, I think that was her 1934 expedition. So she was, like, bouncing around, like, what's over here? What's over here? What's over here? What's over here? Pretty awesome, Mm -hmm. right? 1934 to 1936, she heads back to Mexico. And it was this expedition that she was diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, So she survived the Amazon River and anacondas and poisonous things just to be told that she's going to die of lung cancer. I mean, everyone's got to go out at some point. Um, do, you, do you happen to know if she was a smoker at all? Mm, she probably was. It was the 1920s. Yeah, and that was, like, the cool thing yeah. to do, especially for women. Yeah. Um, she died at the age of 68. Okay. 17 years of her just looking at plants, discovering plants. And they're like, well, what, what could she have discovered in all those 17 years? So 50 of what she discovered were named after her. 500 of them were new. Oh, okay. But in total, the amount of plants and species that she found was closer to 145,000 species of plants that she studied, wrote down, illustrated. Like, 145,000 of them, Megan. I can't even fathom. And honestly, these plants are still being looked at today. So her research, was she funded by a particular organization that her research went to or just? I think it was just like universities that she would like get money from. So like one of them was like Stanford okay. University. So I guess she got, like got grants from universities and she was a student this entire time. So she might have just been like, well, I'm working for environmental studies. Can I be a part of this? She never got her degree. I mean, it's a great in. But she found 500 new species of plants. I mean, a degree just a piece of paper. I know. I just think it's crazy. Not who you are. It's crazy. This woman is like like a cornerstone of South American like plant life that people are still looking into. And people don't even know her name. And I only got like three pages worth of information on her. I mean, that's the part why we're doing this. Because there are so many people that have made really great accomplishments. And yet, next to no one, really, outside of their immediate, you know, area of study, nope. they're not a common name at all. I saw her Google Doodle, and I was like, what is this? And I clicked on it, and I'm glad I did, because this woman was a badass. How many people can span the entirety of 
the Amazon River by themselves on like a balsa wood raft. No, I am too paranoid of snakes. I'd be like, they're gonna bite me. They're gonna try to constrict me. <laughs> I wouldn't. This is not gonna work. Are you like afraid of snakes? No, but after being put in the ICU, that's fair. From a snake, I have a healthy snake for snakes. <laughs> healthy snakes snake for snakes and snake o'clock. I have a healthy snakes. I have a healthy respect for snakes <laughs> and snake o'clock. <laughs> I think for here in Virginia, it's only snake o'clock in the evenings when the copperheads come out. <laughs> it's snake o'clock all day round in the Amazon. <laughs> all day, every day. Meanwhile. And then they do overtime as well. Oh, no. So I'm just casually walking down my neighborhood. I can get a little baby bastard snake going after my ankles. It is 100% going to happen in the Amazon to me. <laughs> Snakes are fine. They're perfectly fine creatures. They don't give me the heebie-jeebies or anything. Just leave me and my flesh and your venom separate. <laughs> Meanwhile. Thank you very much. You'd be freaking out about the snakes. I'd be freaking out about the spiders. We'd be complete fucking wrecks the entire time. We could find a bird-eating spider. They can be as big as a dinner plate. I don't care. <laughs> I did a report on them when I was in third grade, and that's the one fact that really stuck, really stayed. A dinner plate. A dinner plate. Isn't that that's, cool? No. They can eat other Megan, small that is not mammals cool. like, like mice. <laughs> They're amazing creatures. That's not cool. Not cool at all. I do not love that. And sometimes, as you might suspect, they even eat birds. I'm done with you. <laughs> I love you. I love you, too. Um, as always, if you guys have made it this far, you guys are really awesome. We really appreciate it. So, Milana, if people are interested in finding out more about the podcast and seeing some of the show notes, where can they go? All right. So, we have a website. It's myfavoritefeminist.com. You can listen to us there, look at our show notes. You can reach out to us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook. We have an Instagram. We have a Twitter. Honestly, your best bet is Instagram or Twitter. The Facebook's kind of... It's there. <laughs> hey, as our social media representative, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's there. I don't even like social media. <laughs> I don't even use it for my personal stuff. <laughs> so the Instagram and the Facebook are under My Favorite Feminists. And the Twitter account is going to be at Milena Megan. So that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. If you have a particular platform, we're on four different ones. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on TuneIn. We're on Stitcher. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please rate, review, um, if you're listening to us on Spotify or iTunes, please definitely subscribe. But in the comment section below, let us know which one's your hard no, which one won't you be around, a spider or a snake? What are we going with? Or if you have something completely different, if you're cool with both of them and you're like, I, I can't do birds, I get it. I get it. Birds are assholes. <laughs> it sounds like there's a personal story <laughs> behind that, but I'm not going to ask. We're not going to. We're not going to get into that today <laughs> there you go maybe next time uh megan your hard no is a snake obvi and my hard no is a spider you know what non-venomous snakes totally fine with them they're perfectly fine they're pretty cool all the textures and colors going on <laughs> in their eyes and their tongues and everything aren't you glad i didn't bring home a snake that one time i brought home a lizard or that one time you brought home a cat 
Then we went from no cats to one cats to five cats, like way too quick. <laughs> yeah. Spay and neuter, everyone. All right. So until next time, we'll see you then. Have a good one, guys. Bye. <laughs> Come on, babe.